0: Greetings students, as always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the history of the American people since 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Origins of the Second World War. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, The Treaty of Versailles. Before we begin, let's explore the problem with definitions. Many of you have been convinced that socialism means something it does not. Socialism is, by definition, the government ownership over the means of production, not a safety net. Capitalism is also misunderstood, and is often portrayed as having no government interference in the economy, when in reality, Adam Smith's ideas were merely a critique of a mercantilist colonial system, rather than a catch-all about the government's role in the economy. The point is that no economic system is pure. These are just ideas that never work out in practice as we see from our own country in china and this is important because of the misdefinitions of fascism some people think that the nazis because they were called the national socialist german workers party meant that they were actually socialists when in fact they weren't just like the democratic people's republic of korea is neither a democracy nor a republic fascism by definition Is a far right political ideology with extensive populist sentiment and corporatist ties. They do not advocate the entire ownership of an industry. Instead, they wanted one single party, and all others were declared illegitimate. That is fascism. So, next time someone is trying to convince you that fascism is in fact a left leaning ideology, or that Nazis were actually socialists, you might want to ask yourself what is their agenda? And why are they trying to convince me of a lie? The Treaty of Versailles set the stage for the Second World War. Article 231, aka the War Guilt Clause, laid all the responsibility for the war at Germany's doorstep. As a result of the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was forced to pay $32 billion worth of reparations, as well as having their army reduced to 100,000 troops and their air force entirely abolished and the navy reduced to a mere six warships. In addition, Allied troops occupied the Rhineland, which was part of Germany for 15 years, after which the region would be demilitarized, meaning stripped of all defenses and military capabilities. Germany also lost some territory, including Eastern territory, as you can see from the map of Poland. Poland was granted what is called the Polish Corridor, which would give it access to the Baltic Sea, and this split Germany from its province of East Prussia, which it had had for centuries. Many Germans believed that this was totally unfair, especially since no Allied troops were on German soil at the end of the war. Thus this gave rise to the the stabbed-in-the-back theory. This emphasized that the German army had sacrificed all just to have communists and politicians betray them, so the public did not remember that the massive war-weariness had brought a country to the halt and forced an end to the war. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Looking Up. War-torn Europe struggled mightily in the wake of the Great War, but by the mid-1920s, things seemed to be looking up. Most of the major countries' economies, including Germany's, had stabilized, thanks in part to the Dawes Plan, whereby Americans... Loaned money to Germany, who paid off their reparations to the Allies, which then allowed the Allies to pay off their war loans to the United States. In addition, there were several moves to ensure that another arms race, like the one in the 1910s, was prevented, as it was believed that this had contributed to the outbreak of the First World War. So, in 1922, the Washington Naval Conference was held which limited the construction of battleships and aircraft carriers by the United States, France, Great Britain, Italy, and Japan. This was further modified in 1930 at the London Naval Treaty, which regulated submarine building and limited shipbuilding. However, as we will see, Japan seethed at having their naval buildup limited to a rate below that of European nations, and this will eventually lead to their abandonment of the treaty and put them on the path towards Pearl Harbor. Peace was further stabilized in 1926, when Germany was admitted to the League of Nations. This was further strengthened with the Kellogg-Briand Pact in 1928, which theoretically outlawed war. However, this could not last, because in 1929, the world economy collapsed, the spirit of international cooperation crumbled as countries enacted tariffs in the hopes of protecting their own economies. As you may recall, in 1930, the U.S. Congress passed the Hawley-Smoot Tariff, which was the highest peacetime tariff in American history. This contributed to these tariff walls. The point is that the dream of peace was fleeting, as economic depression and worldwide instability created environments in which totalitarian leaders could rise to power. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Soviet Russia. If you recall, Vladimir Lenin and his Bolsheviks seized power in November 1917. A brutal civil war followed, and it took the Bolsheviks, renamed the Communist Party, over two years to establish their control. And this is kind of funny, because Karl Marx never thought Marxism would work in rural Russia. Instead, he thought industrial Germany or England would be better suited for the proletariat revolution. We should note that Lenin's communism is very different from what Marx envisioned with socialism, as communism is actually just a strategy to mobilize oppressed classes and they never really figured out the ruling part. Regardless, under Lenin's leadership, Russia was more like a dictatorship than a classless communist society. The Soviet government required Russian peasants to hand over their crops, but many peasants resisted and preferred to burn them instead. Due to this, in 1921, there was a horrific famine which killed 3 million Russians. This famine happened because of incompetence, compared to a more devious famine which occurred a decade later which was man-made. We'll get to that in a moment. In 1923, Russia was reorganized as a federation of republics called the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, aka the Soviet Union, or the USSR. Then, in January 1924, Lenin died, and in the aftermath, a power struggle ensued, and by 1927, Joseph Stalin had risen to power. This is unfortunate, since Lenin had written a letter which said Stalin should never be given power since he was too bloodthirsty. But Stalin outmaneuvered the rest of the Politburo, forced them to ignore the letter, and then once in power, had all of his rivals murdered. Then, things went from bad to worse. To make the USSR a world power, Stalin implemented a series of five-year plans which called for the collectivization of agriculture and the development of heavy industry. The results were disastrous. From 1931 to 1933, between 7 to 10 million Ukrainians died from a man-made famine caused because of Stalin's policies and the cruel indifference towards an ethnic minority. Stalin, who himself was Georgian by birth, also forced the Russification of On the country's minorities, as well as outlawing the Orthodox Church and the promulgation of propaganda which said that only Stalin's could save the country from the capitalists. Stalin fostered a cult of personality. No one could criticize him, no matter how wrong or misinformed he was. Everyone just had to go along with it. Those who spoke out were purged, and perhaps 800,000 of his political opponents including a number of skilled generals, were killed or sent to the gulags in Siberia. This would have terrible consequences during the Second World War. Overseeing all of this repression was the NKVD, the forerunner of the KGB. Stalin also suffered from a case of national paranoia. He was convinced that the Western democracies were intent on destroying the Soviet experiment at any and every chance. The point is that in Soviet Russia, capitalists were the boogeyman, and Stalin convinced his people that his role was necessary lest the country be destroyed by outsiders. This is a tried-and-true tactic of any authoritarian demagogue, regardless of what economic system they use. Because the cult of personality combined with fear and paranoia, are powerful and dangerous things. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Italy. While communism rose in Soviet Russia, fascism rose in Italy, which was then a constitutional monarchy with a king in parliament. Beginning in the early 1920s, the fascist party rose in popularity. Fascism, which originated in Italy, usually emphasizes the following. First, an intense nationalism, usually along ethnic or racial lines. This intense nationalism says that anything different is bad, or un-Italian or un-American. Another component of fascism is anti-socialism, where you scapegoat the other side and convince the people that communists or socialists are the reason for all of their problems. Next is dynamism, The idea that the leader is a man of progress and action, he must make it appear as if he is doing a lot for the people when he is really just going through the motions or claims there is progress with no evidence or merely enriches himself. Next is militarism, the idea that war will unleash the virtues of the nation like courage and self-sacrifice. Thus war is seen as a positive good. Another component is racism and imperialism, which is tied to nationalism. The idea that certain groups of people are inherently inferior, and that these peoples must be subjugated in order to assume their proper place. Thus the other becomes just one more scapegoat for the problems of the majority. Lastly, you need a bombastic, charismatic leader. A man of charm, who gives enthralling performances in order to whip up the crowd into a full throth, who would then go out and attack his enemies. In Italy, the charismatic leader was a World War I veteran, newspaper editor, and brute, Benito Mussolini. I call Mussolini a brute because he was a ruthless kid who was kicked out of school at 10 years old for stabbing a classmate. He also later stabbed a woman who refused his sexual advances. Mussolini was nicknamed El Duce, and his paramilitary black shirts went around attacking socialists and communists, as well as anyone they disagreed with. They even seized some railroad stations and telegraph offices. Yet the Italian government did not stop them, because they viewed the fascists as a bulwark against communism. They thought they could control and use these thugs for their own benefit. And they were wrong. In October 1922, Mussolini and 30,000 fascists marched on Rome. The king, fearing a civil war, appointed Mussolini his premier, believing that by bringing Mussolini into government, he could be moderated. He too was wrong. Thus, Mussolini officially came to power legally, but began immediately acting illegally. By 1926, Mussolini had dissolved all other political parties, began censoring the press, and instituted a secret police. Despite this repression, foreign tourists observed that Mussolini made the trains run on time, which is no small feat in Italy. Then, Italian officials visited America to great applause, including the Italian head of the Air Force, Italo Balbo, who was given the American Distinguished Flying Cross and even gave an address at Madison Square Garden to thousands of cheering Americans. Back in Italy, Mussolini promised to restore the glory of the old Roman Empire and felt that it was Italy's destiny to take control of the Mediterranean. Thus, in 1935, Italy attacked the last African free nation, Ethiopia, with the hopes of controlling the Indian Ocean. The Second Italian-Ethiopian War, took over six months to win, and the Italians resorted to brutal tactics like bombing civilian homes and even using poisoned gas. But eventually, they annexed the last free African nation on the continent, which fell to European imperialism. The point is that fascism is a dangerous ideology that leads to oppression, war, and ruin. Though for time, fascism was favorably viewed in the United States as people looked to great men of action to fix the Depression. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Japan. Traditionally, Japan had been ruled by an emperor, who people believed possessed divine power. But beginning in the late 19th century, the day-to-day business of government was left to the premier and his cabinet. Now, The military had always occupied a powerful position in Japanese society, which stretched back before the days of the samurai. The military used this influence to expand in the early 20th century when they occupied the Korean Peninsula from 1910 to 1945. However, during the prosperous 1920s, the military's influence waned. Then, the Depression hit, and many people blamed the civilian leaders. So the military increased their role. And the government began more corporatist planning, which basically means working with business, labor, and the government together in order to plan and manage the economy. This benefited the military as they prioritized materiel for their burgeoning war machine. What is more, all Japanese severely resented their treatment in the Washington and London Naval Treaty, which limited the Japanese Navy to a second-rate power. As a result, Japan will reject this treaty and will embark on an all-out building program to increase the size of their navy, particularly their aircraft carriers. Military leaders also believed that aggressive Japanese expansion into northern China in particular was the best way to acquire resources and revive the Japanese economy. This would have fatal consequences. Please advance to the next slide entitled The Weimar Republic. When the Kaiser fled Germany in November 1918, the country became a republic called the Weimar Republic. This entity had an elected parliament and president who would then appoint a chancellor. The government struggled mightily in the 1920s and 30s as it had to deal with war debt, the stabbed in the back theory, public hostility to the Versailles Treaty, economic depression, and finally, opposition from both socialists and ultra-conservatives. Across Germany, people looked for answers, and some even declared themselves messiahs, entreating followers to back them in order to save the nation. But there's one thing about messiahs. There can be only one. One of the opposition groups was the National Socialist German Workers' Party, a.k.a. the Nazi Party, a fascist group that opposed Jews and even the Republic itself. Their symbol was the swastika, and the most famous Nazi was Adolf Hitler. More on him in a minute. By 1923, Germany's economy was reeling with out-of-control inflation. In January French troops moved into the Ruhr Valley to force Germany to pay reparations. Then in November, Hitler and the Nazis tried to seize power in Munich. The revolt began in a large beer hall, where Hitler jumped on a table, fired his pistol into the ceiling, and declared the beginning of the revolution against the Weimar Republic. However, this revolt backfired after many of his militia got into a firefight with police on the street before finally surrendering. Hitler and several other leaders were ultimately arrested in the so called Beer Hall Putsch. In 1924, Hitler was tried for high treason and sentenced to five years in prison, which was the most lenient sentence possible, and he only ended up serving nine months. The trial and prison sentence vaulted Hitler into the national spotlight, which he refused to give up. While in prison, He dictated to an associate what became the first volume of his book, Mein Kampf, which means My Struggle, and he argued the following. First, that the Aryan race was superior. Second, that Jews were inferior and should be blamed for socialism, the Versailles Treaty, and the struggling republic. He also argued that Aryans should not interbreed with inferior people, and most critically, that Germans needed Lebensraum, or a living space, particularly eastward into the Eurasian heartland. While in prison, he wrote Madison Grant, the author of The Passing of the Great Race, and said, This book is my Bible. and He enacted its suggestions with chilling and ruthless efficiency during the Holocaust. From 1925 to 1929, Nazi membership rose steadily, though not spectacularly. In 1928, the Nazis had only won 12 seats in the German parliament. Then the Great Depression struck, and only two years later, by 1930, the Nazis had won 107 seats, making them the second most of any party represented in parliament. The effects would be devastating. Please advance to the next slide with a picture of Hitler. Adolf Hitler was born in Austria, and dropped out of school at the age of 16. He wanted to become an artist, or an architect, but he was not accepted to the Vienna Academies for either. You see, he had an issue with depth perception in his paintings. Despite this, for some reason, there are many art collectors who specialize in collecting Hitler's artwork. Which is pretty weird. Hitler remained in Vienna for six years and made ends meet with his orphan's pension and a little bit of inheritance money. He ended up moving to Munich, Germany in 1913, and enthusiastically joined the German army in 1914, rising to the rank of Lance Corporal. While Hitler recovered in a hospital from a gas attack during the war, he heard about the armistice and subscribed immediately to the the stabbed-in-the-back theory. After recovering, he returned to Munich, and joined what would soon become the Nazi Party. He quickly rose through the party's ranks and was named Fuhrer, or Leader, in 1921. For all of his faults, we have to admit that Hitler was a mesmerizing speaker, and he enthralled people with his rhetorical delivery and dynamic presence. He promised them to make the country great again, and that only he was capable of such a feat. Slowly but surely, Hitler went from being a joke to the most powerful man in Germany as desperate people will latch onto anything when they feel their livelihoods or values are threatened. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Second Sino-Japanese War. In September of 1931, the Japanese army invaded the Chinese province of Manchuria, which is northern China, and established a puppet state there the Japanese claimed that they had been the subject of a Chinese attack. But when international investigators arrived at the scene, they could see that it was all faked. It was evident that this is one of the only confirmed false flag operations in history. The Japanese then quickly advanced. And the Chinese army didn't do anything about it because they were so focused on stopping the rising Chinese communist movement led by Mao Zedong. When the League of Nations investigated the matter, they issued a report calling for Chinese control of the region with protection of Japanese interests there. But this enraged the Japanese, and they responded to the report by quitting the League of Nations in February of 1933, further illustrating the organization's weakness. Then, in December of 1937, Japanese planes sank an American gunboat, the USS Panay, in Chinese waters, Two Americans were killed, and 30 were wounded as a result of the attack. If you recall, what happened when the Maine exploded in 1898? That's right, the United States went to war. So what do you think will happen after the Panay incident? Well, we don't go to war. The Japanese instead will apologize and pay an indemnity for the attack, thus illustrating that Americans will sometimes ignore an attack and other times go all-in on cries for invasion, based on the politics of the moment. We will see this again in Vietnam, and then in Afghanistan. Also in December 1937, the Japanese ended up capturing Nanking, China, and over the next month, they carried out the so-called Rape of Nanking. Over one-third of the city was burned, and 300,000 of its residents were murdered, many of them raped and beheaded. Soldiers used Chinese men for bayonet practice, and Japanese officers stacked Chinese on top of each other to see how many heads they could cut off with their katana swords in one blow. The record was five. Rape was endemic, with women, girls, and even adolescents being raped. The rape of Nanking remains a blemish on Sino-Japanese relations to this day, and there is much fighting over the memory of the event between the two countries. China demands that Japan recognize and apologize for their atrocities. Yet every year, Japanese leaders visit the shrines of their veterans without comment on the atrocities. That is all I have for you for today. Go ahead and listen to part two of the origins of the Second World War. I hope you're all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.